Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality. You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T.com. Breadheads, welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'm your host, Jordan Werner Berry. I'm here with executive producer Michael Harlan Turkel, and today we're focusing on fermentation. Fyodor Dostoevsky writes in Crime and Punishment Just a glass of beer, a piece of dry bread, and in one moment the brain is stronger, the mind is clearer, and the will is firm. This isn't an episode about Raskolnikov's moral dilemmas, but rather that killer combination of bread and beer. Bread has been paired with other fermentations for millennia, with beer in Russian literature, wine in religious texts, and cheese in sandwiches around the world every day. What is it about bread that makes it a natural ally to these fermented products? Well, bread itself is a fermented product. In this episode, we'll look at co-fermentations and variations on the process of yeast eating sugar and releasing carbon dioxide. Later in the episode, Modernist Bread co-authors Nathan Mirvold and Francisco Magoya will bust the raisin myth and give us a handy suggestion for keeping the wine fridge full. But first, a story of when wine begot bread. I said to myself, what else can I do here? Um, it was a part passion, it was part survival for the business. So 2008 was not really good financially for anyone. This is Keith Cohen. He's the owner of Orwasher's Bakery, an iconic 102-year-old bakery based in New York City. When Keith took over the business, Orwasher's was known for its traditional breads, Eastern European stalwarts of pumpernickels and rye. The practice of bread baking hasn't really changed much in a century, other than a few technological advances. Keith appreciated that history, but he saw an opportunity to bring the bakery into modern times by using avant-garde local ingredients. So I originally contacted the Long Island Wine Council, and lo and behold, I ended up speaking to Christopher Tracy at Channing Daughters. 
and cold called him uh, like I was selling him a, a stock. And I said, hey, you know, I don't know if you've heard of this bakery, but I have this crazy idea of making these starters out of your grapes and whether you'd be okay with it. He goes, cool, man, come on down. So I, I met him in November of 2008, and uh, the rest is history. A few years ago, I harvested grapes in Vermont with Deirdre Heakin and Caleb Barber of La Garagista. There was a chill in the autumn air, and the leaves on the vines were changing to match the scenery. But the steady work of picking and sorting through the grapes, along with a wine-soaked harvest lunch, with bread, of course, fresh from the wood-fired oven, kept everything warm except our fingers. So to me... It's like every year we do it, and it is uh, a new vintage, right? So we have a new vintage of starter. We don't have a legacy starter that some bakeries have, and they're very proud of it. I think for us, it is not only um, a practical thing, but a spiritual thing, because harvest time during the fall, and I think it is a spiritual rebirth of the bakery and the lifeblood of the bakery. It's cyclical, seasonal, and almost sacramental, this combining of bread and wine. So we started developing these starters. One was Cabernet, one was Chardonnay. We kind of mixed them together. And little by little, we, we got better at it. And we, we learned how to manipulate the grapes in the beginning, how to feed it. It's almost like a Venice. It's almost like a wine smell. If you've ever been to a winery, you can smell the, the yeast. You can smell the wine. It's in the wood. It's in everything. The starter is very similar to that type of, of aroma. We kind of flipped it. So the, the Chardonnay was on the darker bread and the Cabernet was on the lighter bread. While they don't have names like Levon James or Kentucky Thoroughbred, Orwasher's Chardonnay Miche and Cabernet Rustica hold on to the character of the grapes. The grapes in these starters are for more than just tasting notes, though. While they give aroma and flavor to the bread, the yeast helps create activity. That's kind of the cool thing, that yeast in itself right? It's just floating in the air. And it's up to us as the baker or home baker, commercial baker, to kind of grab it and, and harness its energy. And it's not just the baker, but the winemaker, the cheesemaker, the brewer. Fermentation is little more than nurturing the nature around us. Maybe that's why some of these things that we eat and drink go together so naturally. They're all products of what's in the air. I see it as a, a trinity, right? Bread, wine, and cheese. And it is time-tested. And between all of them, they use similar techniques, right? So the best cheeses are, are, are aged, right? Even a cheddar cheese, right? Part of cheddar, you can have a young cheddar or an aged cheddar. They're aged in caves. Similarly, most bakeries in Europe that took hold were all basement bakeries. They were kind of dungeonish. And same thing with wine. Not only are these processes similarly time-tested, each industry is experiencing a sort of what's old is new again moment. Natural wine is all about minimal intervention. Farmstead cheeses are gaining in popularity. And we don't have to tell you about artisan baking. If you look at winemaking, even the tanks and, and the switches on the tanks that come out of Europe are very similar to, to the baking equipment. But I think sometimes the business gets in the way of the purity and, and the beauty of baking. I think cheese and wine the different nuances the, between the vintages, the year, the cheesemaker, people really appreciate and can get into and have huge discussions. For me, the bread has to be the same every day. Whatever the conditions are, we still want our bread roughly the same. And I don't have the, 
the leeway to explain to my wholesale business, say, listen, it's 95 degrees. Sorry. <laughs> I get, a, I get a, a, an email and a picture. Uh, I don't, you know, as bakers, I don't think we get the same amount of, of leeway as the other people in the Trinity. The idea of vintage bread might be a little stale, but the products in this trinity, the bread, wine, and cheese, are inherently connected and not just at the table. Nina White is the co-owner, with her husband Jonathan, of Bobble Link Dairy and Bakehouse in Milford, New Jersey. She sees ties between bread and cheese from start to sandwich. So what came first in this process of, of finding a location to produce cheese was it the bread or the cheese? Was it the wood fire oven or the pastures for the cows to graze? It was the pastures. We found a farm to rent in New Jersey and rented that farm for eight years. And we decided to build a wood-fired oven because we both love good bread and made good bread at home for many, many years and wanted to bake a little bit of bread just on the weekends for weekend visitors. And the bread started to get as popular as the cheese, because if you have really good cheese, you really need really good bread to go with it. So aside from that, what are the connections between bread and cheese, both in production and at the table? So in production, the connections between bread and cheese have to do with our approach to our raw materials and dialing back our processes to a more uh, ancient methodology of taking advantage of the native yeast, the native bacteria. Uh, we use a starter for the breads, for instance, that we began with a bottle of Saison Dupont in 2003, and we've been carrying it forward in three different mediums since then. Um, an heirloom wheat, red fife, a whole rye, and then an unbleached wheat. So we have three different buckets with that starter that originated back in 2003. I love how unexpected it is that we now have beer in the equation of bread and cheese instead of, you know, the assumed trifecta of wine. Um, wh why did you choose that as the specific starter? Uh, in, in our historic delvings, uh, we saw that uh, an ale starter would be a resilient starter, a tasty starter, a more complex starter. There's a saying that we're quite familiar with and, and, and believe it as we became farmers, that the road to good wine is littered with beer bottles. <laughs> Very true. So what is the road to good bread? Is it littered with cheese wrappers? <laughs> to some extent, to some extent. But I think that the road to good bread begins with your raw materials. And over the years, you know, we started with the best artisanal flours we could get. Fortunately, there were seed savers throughout the world traditionally so that we do have the genetics for the um, more obscure, more delicious, more nutritious, low-producing grains that are going to be a wonderful raw material for really good bread just as the more ancient vines are going to produce less of a more tasty grape. No one would ever take good cheese and eat it with shitty bread. 
Right. Yeah, it's a really good point. And um, I've had people say, you know, I already have the crackers at home. And I'm like, no, please (laughs) don't do it. You know, please at least taste my bread, even if you don't buy any today. But people are so used to having the bread be a bland sponge. Uh, that's the thing that you peel off and don't eat and leave on the side of the plate that I've really had to re-educate people about how tasty bread can be. And it's a lot like the Crosby, Stills, Nash song, Love the One You With. (laughs) You know, they really all work really beautifully together. So when I set forth to make a grilled cheese sandwich, um, it's really hard to decide what to combine. And I find with our cheeses, I can put any of the cheeses, and in combination even, like to put our drum cheese, let's say, on our flax armadillo, and have a couple of slivers of drum, maybe even two millimeters thick, and then combine that with uh, the cabbage cheddar or the five-year cheddar. You can even taste the different cheeses once that's melted together. Like each one has its own voice. It's pretty wonderfully crazy. Now, about tasting things all melding together, have you seen your breads or cheese change their cultures or their flavor profiles because of having bread and cheese in the same space? I think that the uh, cultures, certainly, of the starter have evolved. We try to uh, keep a balance in the cave because we do want more of the penicilliums predominant in the cave, so we don't keep the starter in the cave, for instance. We're sure that the polyculture on our cheeses at this point is, you know, definitely multimicrobial. But I think that the lactic bacteria uh, from from the ambience is one of the things that is informing the starter. So I have one funny last question. It's about crossovers. Do you start any of your breads with cheese? Do you throw that in the starter, or do you have any cheese breads? And part two, have you ever fed your cows your breads to close the cycle? We have not started the bread with cheese, but we have two breads that have cheese either on them or on them and in them. Um, Our cheese biscuit has grated cheese rolled into it and then sprinkled on the top because there is no scrap too small to save of this beautiful, tasty stuff. Uh, and then we also make a cheese ciabatta with it. the cheeses grated and sprinkled on the top. So those are both two really fun, toasty, cheesy breads. Um, our cows are 100% grass-fed. They never get any grain. However, we use the whey from the cheese making to feed pigs. And the pigs also get some of the bread soaked in whey. So that's our loop closing for a waste not want not and continuing to make delicious food uh, with an interdependence between our different production areas. Well, that just sounds like a great grilled cheese with bacon to me. What's your favorite grilled cheese combo? Let us know with the hashtag grilled cheese bread. Fermentation has long been a way to preserve food and minimize waste. Before refrigeration, turning fruit into alcohol and milk into cheese was a way to stretch it through lean winters. Now we ferment things for gratification, 
not just because we have to in order to survive. But thinking about it in relation to food waste and closing that loop is totally relevant today. How do you use your bottom line to feed your cream line? How do you reincarnate byproducts as viable products themselves? We're going to hear from a chef who is playing with leftovers. I'm Tracy Tang. I'm the chef owner of Pagu Restaurant in Cambridge. Uh, we are a Spanish and Japanese tapas restaurant. Um, and Pagu means pug in Japanese, so I am the crazy pug lady. Japan is a culture based on rice. And aside from shokupan, or Japanese milk bread, and an obsession with French baking, there isn't much bread in Japanese cuisine. Tracy's baking bread with sake kasu, a byproduct of the sake brewing process. Sake isn't traditionally in the trinity of things we've been talking about, but it can perform the same role in fermenting and adding flavor to bread. When sake is pressed, the solids that are uh, remaining um, consist of sake kasu. So we use the sake kasu uh, in a brioche recipe that we have, and it helps to add, you know, kind of notes of umami as, um, you know, I guess a little bit different than how a sourdough might taste. Sake kasu is not only a byproduct, but in the Japanese belief of motenai, nothing ever gets wasted. So in a sense, it's just finding new life in bread. Uh, I was doing a lot of private events, catering, private chefing. And during one of my trips to H Mart, I had seen that they were selling these giant bags of sake katsu. And I had seen um, in Japanese cookbooks recipes with sake katsu and baking. I came across one that was um, for baguette and another one that was for anpan, which is kind of like a sweet brioche spread that they make in Japan. So I decided I wanted to do a little more experimenting with bread making and applying sake katsu. Thankfully, Pagu is a quick drive away from Dovetail Sake, a small batch sake brewery in Waltham, Massachusetts. Dovetail uses American-grown Yamada Nishiki rice, Japanese yeast strains, and grows their own koji in-house. They're making a couple different sakes there using Yamada Nishiki rice, which is one of the most kind of premium grains of rice that you can use in sake brewing. So you can only imagine, you know, all the solids that are produced from it that, you know, would otherwise be discarded. They produce a decent amount of it, but they're like, what do we do with these, you know, buckets upon buckets of sake kasu? And, you know, when you meet a curious chef like me and, you know, a couple other folks in town that know about it, they're like, hey, we'll take it off your hands. Tracy is collaborating with students in the Harvard Science and Cooking Program to research whether sake kasu contains active cultures. Can it leaven a loaf on its own, or does it need additional yeast? I've had baker friends, you know, not examining the science of it, just saying, hey, like, I'm able to, you know, make a sake kasu starter without any yeast, and, you know, this is my recipe, and, yeah, it's interesting. Like, we just share our ideas, share the recipes. Like, I gave some to Jason Bond at Bond Deer down the street around the corner from us, and it's really wonderful to see what other people, you know, come up with. In our own version at the restaurant, um, you know, we do mix it with acid dry yeast, there's sugar, there's uh, potato in the recipe as well. And it's not a starter that sits there for many hours or days. We're able to just kind of mix that slurry together and already put the dough together um, pretty much in the same day. 
These breads aren't just ideas fermenting in Tracy's brain. She's incorporating them onto the menu at Pagu, paying tribute to the sake kasu while mixing it up with Boston classics. We're pretty sure the renowned Parker House Hotel didn't have this in mind when they invented their eponymous rolls in the 1870s. So when we hold suckling pig dinners, we have uh, kind of dinner rolls that we bake off in a large hotel fancy, you know, come out kind of looking like on these Parker House rolls or something, you know, aesthetically that's very familiar for folks. But we also have a version that we serve uh, that is the splitting sake katsu brioche um, that has the lobster roll uh, inside. And that one's really quite visually stunning, I suppose, um, because they're splitting with the jet black roll. A glass of Dovetail's Nakahama Junmai sounds like an awfully good, if unexpected, way to wash down a lobster roll. There might not be as many sake brewers in the States as there are craft beer breweries pumping out hazy IPAs, but it's a growing business in the U.S., and there's plenty of sake kasu to go around. While you get things brewing, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. I haven't gotten crazy with sake kasu yet, but one of the first bread recipes I mastered is for a quick beer bread. It's a super simple recipe. Three cups of Bob's Red Mill organic all-purpose flour, a tablespoon and a half of baking powder, a teaspoon and a half of salt, two tablespoons of sugar, and a 12-ounce can of whatever beer is in the back of my fridge. Because it's a quick bread, it only takes 45 minutes from start to finish, and it's my favorite last-minute recipe when I forget to plan for a potluck. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by La Crusade. La Crusade was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through the meals it creates and the style it expresses. Did you know that La Crusade's iconic flame color is inspired by the sight of molten cast iron pouring from a crucible? Flame has been La Crusade's trademark statement in color and style since 1925. My tiny Brooklyn kitchen is a little bit more minimal, and I stick with the classic white of Le Creuset's matte cotton color. I love how its matte finish offers a fresh take on Le Creuset's color tradition and how it goes with everything, especially a crunchy, perfectly browned loaf of bread. Bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond, only from Le Creuset. Visit lecrusade.com backslash bread now to explore their entire collection of cast iron cookware and search their recipe page to get started. Enjoy special offers and free shipping with code BREAD. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. When you sit down at a restaurant, what comes first? The bread basket or your drink? What if the bread basket were in your drink? Marika Josephson is the co-owner and head brewer of Scratch Brewing Company in Ava, Illinois. She and her business partner, Erin Clyden, 
Brew farmhouse beers with homegrown and foraged ingredients, showcasing the terroir of Southern Illinois. That ethos includes a process that's a little unusual in the brewing world. Yeah, what we do is insane. Like, it's crazy. We talk to another brewer and we tell them what we do in our process to put a sourdough culture into our stainless steel fermenters, their eyes about like bug out of their face. Instead of commercial yeast, 75% of Scratch's beers are fermented using a sourdough culture. Before we even had the brewery open, we had been experimenting with the sourdough culture. And as home brewers do very often, um, we thought, well, why don't we make a beer with that? They knew that first draft of the culture was a mix of lactobacillus and saccharomyces because it was a healthy bread starter. We decided to do a beer that would do well with that mix of yeast and bacteria. So we tried a Berliner Weiss, which is a light German-style wheat beer that is fermented tart, essentially. Totally as an experiment, you know, tried a small amount of the starter, just pitched directly into the culture. And about a week later, we took some gravity readings just to see how the fermentation went, the um, alcoholic fermentation. And it had done its thing and it tasted amazing. Um, It tasted a little bit like apples and pears and a little bit of lemon. And it was basically just a spot on Berliner Weiss. They were thrilled because this sourdough starter wasn't just meant for beer. As things shifted from home brewing to professional, Marika and Aaron built a wood-fired hearth oven at the brewery, and they started serving bread alongside Berliner Weiss. Ale in a day's work. And then we built up a, a new sourdough culture in our kitchen at the brewery. So we wanted something that came literally from that place. And then we started playing around with fermentations again with the sourdough culture and our beer on a bigger scale. And so we started doing a non-sour version by adding hops to the beer because the Berliner Weiss we actually did without hops, which is unusual for beer. Um, But we thought that the hops might inhibit the uh, microbial activity of the bacteria. So that was why we decided not to put it in and that seemed to work pretty well. So when we decided to do a non-sour fermentation, um, we put hops in the beer and to see if that would help to um, keep the bacteria at, ba- at bay. And sure enough, it did. It worked so well that split between sour and non-sour fermentations, three quarters of the beers at scratch are fermented with sourdough. But when your beer is hopless, it doesn't mean that preservation is hopeless. Though using straight sourdough starters isn't always that stable. So normal commercial brewing yeast comes from a very sterile lab. Um, It's absolutely tightly controlled. There's a lot of concern about contamination in those yeasts from the lab to the brewery and everywhere in between. It comes in a, a package that has pretty much never touched air at any point in time. A very sterile package, and it's basically pitchable, so it comes in a quantity that is ready to go right into a fermenter on a brew day. That tightly controlled yeast is typically Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but mixed fermentation is gaining popularity in the craft beer world. Whether it's Brett, the wild yeast strain Britannomyces, which definitely likes beer, or one of Omega yeast's more liberal microbes, mixing it up 
is what our culture is all about. So what we do with the sourdough culture is we have a mother culture that lives in our fridge in a plastic container that has like, you know, dried sourdough caked around the, uh, you know, edges of it. And it's been living in our fridge for about four years now, just like that. We take a portion of it off and put it into a plastic bucket and add water and flour and build it up exactly the same way that we would for bread, actually. And we kind of, <laughs> we measure our beer fermentation by the number of loaves that it would make if we were making bread. <laughs> if a keg is 15.5 gallons and a gallon is eight pounds, that's a lot of loaves. And so we, we mix it up with a wooden spoon and we put a piece of aluminum foil over the top of the bucket, which I mean, seriously, all this is like insane. If you're talking to another brewer, like wooden spoon, what kind of bacteria does that harbor? Plastic bucket hasn't been sanitized, you know, a piece of aluminum foil over the top, like what could get underneath? So we let it, we let this culture in the bucket um, sit overnight. Uh, for about 24 hours and it gets really active and bubbly and then we take that slurry of mother culture plus uh, water and flour and uh, at the end of a brew day we open the top of a fermenter and we just dump that bucket into the fermenter. I literally think that every single fermenter that we have has sourdough culture just caked on one corner or another or a little bit of flour. This puts a whole new spin on wheat beer. Scratch tells drinkers that they're using a sourdough culture, but most don't care that they're drinking their bread. They're more into the fact that it's a mixed culture because it's got craft beer cachet. You know, once upon a time, um, people uh, kind of looked down on beer because they were using the same, um, brewers were using the same ingredients to make beer as they would to make bread. And bread had a lot more value because, you know, it's, it's sustenance. We make a beer called Kvass which is just like a take on an old Russian style of beer that was made with uh, leftover bread. Um, and so we use, if we have leftover bread at the end of a weekend um, that we haven't totally sold through, we will make it into a batch of kvass. So we toast the bread, put it into our mash, and we pull off you know, any residual sugar that might be left in the bread and the flavor and stuff and mash in a few more grains. And then we ferment it with our sourdough culture too. So it's kind of like, even more full circle, you know, the bread that's been fermented with our sourdough culture, and then we take it and make a beer that is also fermented with sourdough culture. Don't kvetch. Have some kvass. If you're lining up at Scratch or Jester King in Austin or Fontaflora in North Carolina, you're standing in a modern bread line. Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, points out that it works the other way, too. Once again, what's old is new. We even used barm, which is the yeast that is, is, is kind of like a byproduct of brewing, of, of making your own beer. And that's, that is kind of like the original form of, of a sourdough starter, and it was used for, for you know, the longest period of time before we were actually able to understand sourdough starters and understand how to uh, make instant dry yeast. Barm was the yeast of choice. It's not smarmy to make bread that's barmy. It may be a historical reenactment, but it works. Barm was the yeast of choice. And and you can make bread with it. it it's, you're mostly utilizing the yeast that live on hops. 
Um, there's some that were on the grains, the grain mash that is used for making beers, but it, it's not it's not as potent as the yeast that you would find on wheat. And so you'll get some leavening, you'll get some fermentation. And again, at the end of the day, you'll have bread. It'll be bread. But will it be a very good bread or will it be just like a passable bread? These are two different things. So um, some would argue that warm bread is warm bread and it's fantastic regardless of how much volume you get. But uh, when you have the right yeast in there, you're going to get a much better product. If more breweries start baking, barm bread could be the new way to roll in the dough. It's never been easy to get barm if you're a baker because you're either a brewer or you're a baker. So bakers would have to ask the brewers for the barm. And so that they wouldn't have to do it every day. They learned how to try to perpetuate that or keep it and maintain it so that they wouldn't have to go to the brewer every day and get barm. And, it, you know, who's to say that the brewer is going to have barm available every day or maybe they had a bad day, maybe, you know, so... You you will have bread, but I think it's much better when you utilize the more the, the specialized uh, form of yeast. When writing modernist bread, they leavened bread with just about everything. Okay, so there's, and I'm not even going to use the, the 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 term that they're apples and oranges because we're talking about the same thing here. The yeast that exists in a sourdough starter or a leaven is the same yeast that is instant dry yeast or active dry yeast. It's the same strain. It's Saccharomyces cerevisiae. The difference is that what you have, when you have this wild yeast, the sourdough starter, it's in a very diluted form. It's not like a very strong version of the yeast. When you use instant dry yeast, it's a very concentrated form and it's very powerful. Its fermentation abilities are, are pretty much like so far ahead from, from the wild stuff. I would compare it to either getting somewhere by riding a horse or getting somewhere in a Ferrari. You're going to get there, but one is going to get you there much faster. Now, there's trade-offs, like in anything, right? The trade-offs are that a sourdough starter is going to have a particular flavor, a particular aroma, particular texture. You get that depth of flavor because of the, the yeast, but also because of the lactic acid bacteria, which you, you don't really have that with with instant dry yeast. Although there are some manufacturers that make a sourdough starter yeast in which they also have introduced lactic acid bacteria in that powder form. And you kind of get the taste a little bit. I don't think it's a fair replica, to be 100% honest. But there's many reasons why you would want to have bread like stat. And with sourdough, you couldn't do that, right? And, you know, there's a, there's a really nice combination of using actually both. It's not like voting for one party or another party. Here you can actually have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. You can pony up for speed, but sometimes zipping down the fermentation superhighway makes you miss the flavor exit. The important thing to understand is that yeast, there's many different species of yeast, but what we need to realize is that yeast is going to live where it has food. It's not going to live where there isn't the food it likes. It's very specialized to specific sugars that it's, it's grown to know it's its food source. And can you make bread with that? Will you have some activity? Yes, because as long as there is some sugar, it's not like the yeast is going to frown down on it. But if it's not its favorite sugar, it won't be as, um, as active, as happy, as, as if it had the food source that it's gotten used to. If you had your choice of sugar, would you pick grapes or raisins? 
Nathan Mirvold, Francisco's co-author of Modernist Bread and the founder of Modernist Cuisine, explains why sourdough starters might not benefit from fruit well off the vine. If you look on the internet, there's zillions of different approaches. People add, people like adding dried fruit. Uh, raisins uh, or organic raisins are particularly popular. Well, if you add the raisins, it gets you the wild yeast that's on the raisin. And sure enough, if you look at a raisin up close, um, it's got a sort of a dusty blue-gray, you know, on top of the brown. And if you put your fingernail in there, you can kind of scrape it off, and that's yeast. On playgrounds everywhere, there could be school kids taking their tiny boxes of raisins and mixing bread starters, if they're not too busy trading snacks, that is. It struck me as silly to be throwing in a bunch of uh, yeast that would be adapted for a totally different purpose. So we did an experiment where we took flour and water on one side. On the other side, we took one of these typical recipes for sourdough that involved or for starting a sourdough sort of involved putting in uh, raisins. And then we had a third one where we did that, but we pressure cooked the raisins first. Now, a pressure cooker is used in biology labs to sterilize things. Uh, they, they call theirs an autoclave, but it's a um, pressure cooker. So we wanted to see, well, which one of these grew fastest? Well, initially there was no contest. It was the pressure-cooked one. The, <laughs> the pressure-cooking beat the crap out of the raisins, so they were kind of juicy and falling apart. That made it easier for microorganisms to digest them. Then, after that, the, the sourdough with raisins takes off. And so for the first day, those two were beating flour. But then what happened is they ran out of raisins. It's like when AC, Bebop, Stretch, and Red, a.k.a. the California Raisins, disbanded and the music died. Well, bubbling means that there's microbes that are producing carbon dioxide. And that's bubbling away. But that does not mean that that is the bacteria or yeast that you want for making bread. And in fact, what happened is like the story of the tortoise and the hare is in day two, the two raisin ones totally ran out of steam and dropped down and the uh, flour and water just steadily rose up and overtook both of them. Slow and steady wins the race in starters and in fermentation in general. You can throw in the towel on throwing in a raisin but playing with wine can give flavor and character to your bread, even if it's not jump-starting the activity of the starter. When the Modernist Cuisine team was testing Levon recipes for Modernist bread, they found proof that reinforces the connection between bread and wine. Well, we discovered, fortunately, this is a happy accident, that our favorite sourdough happens to uh, proof best at um, 55 degrees Fahrenheit. I say that's a happy accident because that is the temperature that wine fridges are traditionally set at. So you can get a cheap wine fridge at Costco, and it is ideal. If you're swirling and sniffing your wine, 
Why not try it with your bread, too? If you've ever been around bread being baked, there's this amazing aroma. Bread while baking just smells great. Well, this bothered me because why should it smell so good? So we did a bunch of experiments, and it turns out that the good smell of bread comes from yeast. And the way you figure this out is you bake bread without yeast. Now, of course, it isn't very good bread. It's this hard as a rock, pretty terrible bread. But it does not smell great while it's baking. The aromas that we smell that are so enticing and they get us so hungry, those aromas are due to the volatile compounds that are created by the yeast in the process of fermentation. Now, those same volatile compounds are why beer doesn't taste like spoiled porridge and wine doesn't taste just like spoiled grape juice. Wine can have all of these flavors in it that were never in the original grape. You think, oh my God, where did that come from? Well, it came from this process of fermentation. So there is something about that fermentive process that creates a set of molecules that when you heat them up and release them, damn, they smell good. What if, in your refrigerator, you have wine and sake and beer, but none of them were for you to drink? Instead, they were for you to eat, as bread. For me, the winning fermentation combination is bread and cider. And it's not just the cider Parker House rolls rules. When I'm not busy with bread, cider's my thing. So much so that I got a master's degree studying it. With cider, I spend a lot of time thinking about how it's aligned. Is it more like wine or like beer? Now, thanks to inspiration from Keith and Marika, I'm thinking of all the ways it's really like bread, or at least ripe for fermenting with it. And the point of all this, these fermentation experimentations, is that really they all work. So give them a try. Take the apple pomace from the press, or the wine lees, or sake kasu. Pour yourself a beer, eat some cheese, and play with your bread. This has been episode 11 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Something in the Air. In the next episode, we'll take a look at the flatter and faster side of breads. Special thanks this week to Keith Cohen, Nina White, Tracy Chang, and Marika Josephson. Modernist Breadcrumbs is produced by executive producer Michael Harlan Turkel and me, Jordan Werner Berry, in collaboration with Modernist Cuisine. Our audio engineer is Noam Osband. Our theme music is composed by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a production of Heritage Radio Network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening.